respect. It's a noun. It's a deep respect or high esteem. And the verb form of it is to have respect or to have hold someone in high esteem. So we have this idea of respect. And I think that um, I've been challenged with this notion, and it was really from the book Love and Respect. And there's some parts that I like and some parts that I've discarded, but the realization that we think respect needs to be earned. And I like to challenge us to think that respect and honor don't need to be earned. That they're part of who we are is made in the image of Christ, and other people deserve to be treated with respect and honor because they're made in the image of God. Um, I, would, I would think that trust needs to be earned. Well, somehow we've got this message that love needs to be unconditional, but respect doesn't have to be unconditional. But, um, so we're thinking about this in light of respect. I wanna, um, one of the, uh, the this uh, typically, historically, honor has been defined as, and this is going to be, the idea of a bond between an individual and society as a quality of the person that is both social teaching and, and a moral ethos. A code of conduct. In other words, is a code of conduct outlined by a social group that we adhere to. If we think about medieval honor, we think of how knights would go into battle for their ladies' honor and um, how many feuds throughout history have been fought because this guy did something to this family, so that family has to defend their honor and kill this guy, and then that guy has to defend, and this continual generations of family infighting and feuds and wars because we have to defend someone's honor. We see it here in our country, not in our country so much. Um, If it happens, it's pretty well hidden, tried to keep hidden. But you see in the Middle East, honor killings, that if something happens to someone, if a woman gets raped, her family is obligated to kill her because she's brought shame and dishonor to their family. Or other things, if if someone comes out as homosexual, honor honor demands that they, they kill the person. So historically, honor has been this external pressure on an individual to adhere to a set of, a code of conduct. But we're not talking about killing people. We talk about um, building a culture of honor. So what does a culture of honor look like in the church? And in the backdrop of our mind, we want to have that idea of respect and esteem for, for people, for individuals. Honor in a culture means we all get to happen. That we each get to show up fully ourselves. Complete with our uniqueness our personality, gifts, and callings. And this is not just a passive permission. Okay, you can be here. It's actually an invitation. We want you just the way you are. And not just an invitation, but a we need you. So a culture of honor recognizes the individuality of people, and we want individuals to show up fully themselves and bring them into the community to participate in the community. A culture of honor doesn't mean it's leaderless. We have uh, some, I think... I think in some um, Anabaptist descendants, uh, I like the idea of priesthood all believers. You don't have a hierarchy or you don't have to come from Peter. But sometimes we've taken that. To, everybody has equal say. It doesn't matter. It's like this flat line and there's no really leader. Because, but a, a culture of honor doesn't mean it's leaderless. It's just that we all follow a leader as powerful people. That have choices. And we do have influence in, that, in those relationships. In a culture of honor, we're all allowed to be authentic. That's kind of like getting to be fully ourselves. It doesn't give me permission just to do whatever I please and treat you however I want. That's not, but I don't have to walk on eggshells either. It gives us the, it, it's, it's a culture in which we give each other the benefit of the doubt. And we believe the best in one another. And allow, we allow each other to make mistakes. 
we understand that we all have lenses through which we, we filter interactions. And so it's not a, well, you made me do this kind of a thing. But a, a realization that in this relationship, we're going to bump into each other. And what are we going to do about it? So a culture of honor means we get to be authentic. It creates a free environment, a safe environment where authenticity is allowed to bloom and come to the forefront. A culture of honor in the church also means that we position ourselves in such a way that we can give people what they deserve. There we go. That was the first one. Go to the next one. And then the next one. Okay, click on the next one. There you go. And the next one. There we go. There we go. And then the next one. A culture of honor means we recognize people for who they are. And and we position ourselves in a way that we can give them what they deserve. And we can receive what they carry. If you think of John 4.44, where prophet is that honor is in town. Why is that? If if we receive a prophet as a pastor, we're not going to get a prophet's reward. We're not going to be able to receive from the prophet because we're expecting pastor. And we're not recognizing the anointing and the gifting that's on that person so we can't receive. Dishonor prevents us from receiving what people carry. It, It kind of puts a barrier from you receiving what people carry. When we expect to receive what they don't carry and we dishonor them, then we're, we're, we lose out on what that person brings to ourselves. We're in a body as a large. We miss out on what they can bring to the body. So if culture of honor creates this atmosphere, we reposition our hearts to give people what they deserve. We're afraid of labels. And I'm not saying we just need labels. But on the other hand, if I need a cardiologist, I want a label. I don't want to walk into a doctor's office and find out he's a neurologist when I needed a cardiologist. I want to know that, and in the same way, if I'm seeking ministry and I need a pastor, I want to know the person's a pastor. I don't really want to go to a teacher if I need a pastor. Because all I'm going to be told is what I did right or wrong or the theology of whatever it is. Now, a culture of honor is not one that's free of disagreement or conflict. But it recognizes the value and develops, recognizes the reality of conflict in the midst of such diversity. And thereby encourages to each person to develop a lifestyle of confrontation. And so we're going to be talking some about each of these aspects of a, a culture of honor. A culture of honor depends upon some core values. And one of them, freedom. There, there must be freedom. It has to be an atmosphere of freedom where we all get to show up. That we don't, we, we don't say, no, you can't come like that, but this person, we allow each person. Freedom is very important in the church. Uh, Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by yoke of slavery. So there is this freedom, but don't let yourselves be burdened by another yoke of slavery. In a culture of honor, I don't have to suppress who I am and become what somebody else wants me to be. Historical understandings of honor have had, this, have had this connotation of an external societal pressure to conform. Where in a biblical understanding of a culture of honor, there's an internal transformation. And there are times that I am not naturally a certain way, but I can be that because I want to meet your needs. But there's also an understanding that's not naturally me, and I'm not required to be that all the time. And we don't... We don't um, put ourselves or expect other people to get into a box. That's just another form of slavery. If we suppress ourselves or try to suppress other people, we don't, I don't have to control you. I don't have to fix you. 
because there's this atmosphere of freedom that I don't want to control you because I don't want to put you under the bond of slavery again. Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly and in love. Powerful people in a culture of honor can make adjustments. Yes, I'm free to do or to be this, but I can lay that aside because I love you. This is one, this is one of the messages that I've, I've tried to communicate um, in my, uh, the talk I have, Men Aren't Perverts, is encouraging us as women anyway, and it, it extends in other areas, but just hear me out, to walk in that tension of it is not my fault. I don't need to blame myself if men struggle with lust. But at the same time, I can lay aside my freedom because I love my brother. And I don't, I don't want to in any, I want, I want to make it, I want a relationship where it frees him and empowers him to walk in what God, it's not my responsibility, but in love, I can lay aside, I'm not going to use that freedom as an opportunity to do whatever I please. And then we also know 2 Corinthians 3.17, now where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The spirit reigns in an atmosphere of freedom. He's not going to coerce us. And when we begin to coerce people or control people, we're stepping outside the flow of the spirit. Now, freedom requires powerful people. And we could have a whole message on what it means to be a powerful person. We have this idea in America that powerful people are the ones that are in control. Those people that are intimidating. Those ones that are strong and they're, just, they're in charge and... Or they can really influence people. They're the ones that can sell an, es- sell an-, an air condition to an Eskimo in January. Or you're afraid of them because you just gotta feel like you've got to tiptoe around them. Those people, that's not power. Those are actually powerless people. It's, if, if, I, if I have to tiptoe around somebody because I'm afraid of their anger, it's actually a, para- a powerless person. Powerful people know that on a good day, I can only control me. I don't, there's no point in me trying to control you. I'm not going to control you. I control me. Powerful people make statements like I will and I won't rather than I can't or I'll try. When Danny Silk first talked, let me back up because there's a lot of here that's going to sound very much like Danny Silk. And I'm totally indebted to him for a lot of what I'm learning. And I also want us to realize that I don't, I'm still trying this out. <laughs> and so, um, but when in, uh, in his um, talk for couples defining the relationship, he says, I tr- I'll try is actually a statement of a powerless person. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. Because I don't know how many times Butch will walk out, hey, can you mail such and such? Well, I'll try to remember. And the thing, because I don't want to commit to it, and then I, then I don't do it. And I know my propensity to get busy and forget. Well, then the, we, had, we had talked about this, and he agreed with Nanny. I didn't. <laughs> I'm like, I, I kind of get it, but yet I don't want to promise something that I'm afraid I'm going to forget. So a little day or so later, he said, hey, I need you to run the bank. Can you take the money to the bank? And I'm like, I was getting ready to say, I'll try. And I said, all right, I will. And I did get it done. But see, powerless people are, I can't do that. I'm not sure what's going to fit in my schedule. I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have whatever. Powerful people know where their limitations are. And they also know that sometimes a yes to God means no to people. And they're willing to, they're willing to, um, allow the chips to fall where they may because people don't like it. They expect certain things. This is, this is expected of you in this situation. Why did you even get in this situation if you're going to do it? And, you're gonna, and, and they feel like you're being selfish. But no, I've said this yes to God and this yes demands a no over here. So no, I won't do that. 
if he changes my mind, if he highlights that to me and I'm praying and he says, yes, you need to do that, then I'll change my mind. But right now, he's not asking me to do this. And a powerful person is able to say, I won't and be okay with it or I will and follow through with their word. There are three types of relationships. The way we relate to people. Um, If you have two powerless people, they're governed by fear and they need to control. And it's going to manifest itself in one of two ways. There's either going to be a need to control you or you're going to give up control to the other person. I have a tendency... um, I have a tendency to want to control people. I don't readily give up control, but I will. If I feel there, there are situations where I'll just give up control and, and then I feel powerless and then anger comes. In a powerless and a powerless relationship, fear is there and there's this idea that if you don't let me control you, then I'm going to punish you. It could be silence. It could be distance. It could be anger. It could be ultimatums. Well, if you're going to choose that, you can choose that, but then you're not, you're choosing, yeah. It's this force, this, this idea that you have to choose between one of two things and by doing that, you're rejecting me. I'm the, see, I'm putting that person in a position to reject me when, because I'm a powerless person I'm trying to control them. And a powerless person responding to that is going to give up some measure of control and somehow try to acquiesce to some way. And they're going to be frustrated as a result. So you've got these two powerless people. You end up with a controlling relationship it's governed by fear. Now, you can have a powerful person and a powerless person. And we were, we were talking about this. You have, what you have is then the powerful person who's steady, who knows what this, he or she wants and can make decisions, and they get hooked up with a powerless person, they can often fall into the place of being the rescuer. Depending on, the more, I think the more powerful we come, become, the more we recognize our limitations on what we can do for the other person. Uh, about seven years ago, I think it was. No, it was before Jonathan was born. See, he's eight and a half. So it's before Jonathan. I, I entered a season where I was... I, I was um, very, very, I was in a wilderness like I've never been in him. I hopefully I never will be again. But in that, I was demanding so much of him. I was a completely powerless. And so at one point in time, the Holy, I think the Holy Spirit reminded him that my needs he couldn't meet, that only God can meet them. And so a powerful person can get to the point where, you know what, I can't rescue you. This is something that you need to, to look to God for. But you typically, if you have a powerful person with a powerless, you end up with a dependent relationship. The powerless one is depending on the powerful one to meet their needs, to be who they need, to be their savior, to be their rescuer. But if you have two powerful people coming together who control themselves, who know, they know where they stop and where their, where their responsibilities stop and where your responsibilities start, and they can, they can make statements like, okay, yes, I will, or no, that's not, I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not going to do that. And you end up with a relationship that's free and it's interdependent. So we want in the church, we want powerful people relating to powerful people. So this environment of freedom, this core value of freedom, means you get to be exactly what God designed you to be. And I get to be exactly what God designed, who God designed me to be. And there's no pressure for us to become somebody else. There's no group pressure or external pressure to kind of try to conform us into, into some ideal. Or even, even, even for the health, the supposed health of the, of, the, of the body. This is where sometimes anointings conflict. Because pastors want the flock to be happy and contented. And when people have, sometimes have giftings or anointings that ruffle other people in the flock... The pastor wants to try to kind of contain them. 
And it's all, I mean, I'm not, this is, it's just kind of, they, they want it because the whole flock is disturbed. So we've got we to gotta control and contain this one sheep. And Apostle, on the other hand, he values that, that there's this, as long as it's not a rebellious sheep, we're not talking about that. It's okay. And so we don't need to, in a culture of honor, we all get to be who we are. A culture of honor recognizes that God has redeemed us as sons and daughters to walk as powerful people in perfect freedom. Okay, another core value of a culture of honor is that people in relationships have value. We place a high priority on connection. In an environment, in a culture of honor, when we have powerful people and we place value on people, I start to care how I'm affecting you. And I want, I want, to, I want to adjust in ways that meet your needs without becoming who you need or want me to be. But I can adjust and be, for a time, what you want me to be. I can bring to this table what's missing. I recognize how my choices affect you. And if I make a mess, I'm willing to clean it up because I value the connection that I have with you. Valuing others means embracing differences. You think about it. Honor recognizes that you and I are different, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. We really wouldn't be able to have a healthy body if we were all the same. If we all brought the same stuff, there'd be some places miss, things missing. Honor embraces diversity rather than expecting or demanding conformity. It's dishonoring to have everybody try to fit into one ideal that we think, that everybody's got to fit here. Everybody's, everybody's got to become this so we can all be happy. And what happens, we know this in theory, we know it, but what happens is my personality, my giftings, my strengths are going to mean that I am not going to notice things that you think are so obvious. And the things that are really obvious to me, you're not even going to notice. And so what do we do? We tend to take offense. How could you not notice that? How could you not think of that when you're saying that to me? What is it? Or how can you not notice that we need this? This is the most obvious need that we need in this church, and you don't even want to do it. I don't notice it. And Harold Everly says that each, each, like each of the fivefold anointings, and I think it's true of, of any other gift mix, the, the idea what you notice is most missing and most needed is really a sign of your anointing. And too often we want somebody else to do it, so we have... I, I, I'm noticing we need more pastoral care. We need more connection. There's, we need more nurturing. And so I try to find somebody else to do it. But I might be asking a prophet to do it who is not wired. You don't want a prophet. Nurturing. And we try to find somebody else to do it. If it's a need that I have, if I notice the need, then chances are I'm the one he's tapping on the shoulder to bring it. And if I'm not, then I need to be praying about it. We embrace diversity. And the very thing that you carry, I need. And on the flip side of that, let me see. I lost my train of thought. There's also a flip side of it. Chances are the very thing that I carry has a flip side that irritates you. And so we want to get rid of the irritating part, but keep, keep what we need about that person and we can't. If I dishonor someone because of that irritation, I can't receive, I can't receive from them. So if I, if I dishonor um, say I dishonor a prophet for being just direct and what I would see is belligerent because it's belligerent to my normal 
and I dishonor them. I can't receive what they need to bring into my life. And it's by honoring them and recognizing this is the way God's wired them. This is the way prophets are. And I can honor them. I can receive them. I'm not going to, anyway, don't need to belabor that point. Protecting honor and valuing relationship is key in guarding how we talk about people and what we listen to. Bill Johnson has said he's committed to not saying any negative thing about anyone. There's a story I heard, I don't, I don't know if it's true or not, about a, a, a grandmother who could not say anything negative about anybody. Every, she could always find some good to say about somebody. And one of her, her son or grandson said, Grandma, I think that you could find something good to say about the devil himself. And she thought for a moment, well, he sure is a hard worker. <laughs> so we're in, in a culture of honor. When we value people, when we value connection, we watch our tongue. And we watch our tongue even when those we think aren't affected by it aren't around. And I, I, have, a, I have a, this is something the Lord has really been placed in my heart. Um, in a, I was in a group of people and we were talking about, I don't, I don't remember what we were talking about, but I think Trump must have come up because I said, he came and spelled the word dignity and I just spit it out. And I can't go back and fix that now. It put, it put something there. And, and so it wasn't a very honoring thing to say of him, nor was it, what does it say about the, my friends of mine who support him and, and like him? It, it puts that something there, and I, I can't clean it up. So I've been trying to commit to, to not saying anything negative. But on the flip side, there's also the idea that we're not going to listen to anything that's negative. Now, I realize there's this place I think we need... Um, and I'll probably talk about this a little bit more later when I, when I talk about handling conflict. There are times when I need another perspective to see if this is something that I'm carrying, if it's something I'm perceiving that's not true, that maybe I have a filter going on, okay? So if I, if I have an interaction with someone and it hurts me, sometimes it helps to get good feedback. And I've, I've, I've had people while I say, I, I really don't think that's what the person meant. I think this is really what he was trying to say. And I'm able to back off and, and recognize it. So we do need that, but we can't become sounding boards for complainers because what happens I've seen is we end up posturing our heart differently and we end up seeing things we wouldn't normally have seen. Plus, we can't fix it. We can't clean up the messes. If, if somebody hurts my feelings, you can't clean up that mess. Only that person can. And so what's the point of me talking to you once I've gotten some perspective, if I need it, and we really need to be careful to know whether we need it or not, or we're just trying to sound off. But I have to go, yes, I have to go right to the person and let them clean up the mess. Now, I do think that it's okay. If someone comes to me and they have a problem with somebody, I'm, I'm like, I think you really need to, go, need to go talk to the person. And if you want, I'll go with you. And another thing with feedback is realizing if I don't see any truth in the feedback... I can't, I don't need to hear, have somebody come so so thinks you're ugly and you're fat and you really need to shut your mouth. I don't need that kind of feedback. And neither do you. If you don't, there's times that I I hear stuff about people and I'm thinking, there's no, there's no truth in that. And so it stops right there. And they know, I mean, I want them to know it's going to stop here. But if I think, okay, I can understand how you're feeling that way. I may have felt that way. I'll go with you if you want to go talk to the person. But you need to clear it up with that person. You need to give them the opportunity to clean up the mess. We don't speak ill of people, and we don't listen to ill of people in a culture of honor. Sometimes what others tell me, tell us, really reveals more about them than it does about the person they're complaining about. 
So a culture of honor, wait, okay. Honoring you means that your time matters, your feelings matter, your gifts matter, your calling matters. You matter. You are an important part of this body we call gateway. And when we place high value on people, we want to communicate whatever way we can that they matter. And our own preferences sometimes take a back seat because we want that person to know they matter. So in a culture of honor, it values people in a relationship and it's intentional about building and protecting connection. We're going to talk more about protecting connection in the second half. And the third value of a culture of honor, core value, is that individual destinies are connected to a common purpose. You see this in marriages. You have individual destinies, but somewhere you find a way that they come together for a common purpose. If you have two people married, you have two completely separate destinies. They're completely two separate tracks. They're going to, they need to find some way of connecting, find something common. But in the church as well, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about us being a body. Just as a body, though one, has many members. I'm not, I'll just go by memory part of it. Uh, just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. And it goes on to say, if we had, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body, you know, and if and if the eye can't save the hand, I don't need you. So we got this diversity in the body, and they all matter. And each of those particular functions come together to form, in our, in our sense here, a gateway. And we have a common purpose that we need each other. In a culture of honor that that recognizes this, we want to help people learn to know their gifts, their personalities, their anointings, whatever it is that they bring. Because not everybody knows. For some of us, it's quite obvious. We know. He's told us or or it's just been driven us to find out. And others are like, I don't don't know where I fit in. And sometimes it helps for us to help them. Well, this is what I see in you. Does that resonate? And help each person discover gifts. And then empowering them to walk in their gifts. Giving space for it. Inviting them to lay their puzzle piece down in the puzzle that we're building together. Honor appreciates the uniqueness of each of us. Recognizing it as an asset to what we're building. Rather than an obstacle to be overcome. The very thing you bring that might irritate us. That I think is an obstacle. Is probably the very thing that we need here at Gateway. We need you. Your destiny is connected to our corporate purpose and to the kingdom, the purpose of the kingdom at large. And so we need just what you bring. We need it here. We need the gifts you bring to fulfill what God has planned for us. And in a culture of honor, we're going to seek to help people discover their gifts and find a place for them so that we can work together to manifest and advance the kingdom. Culture of honor sees our unique callings as essential and our individual destinies as connected to a common purpose and a mission. So these are the core values of a culture of honor. What time am I at here? Because I think I'm 7.39. Okay. All right, so we've got this atmosphere of freedom. And we've got a strong value for relationships and people. And we've got an awful lot of diversity. And when you put that into one room... A bunch of people who have backgrounds that are different, have normals that are completely different, who have different filters, everything. You get them into the one room, you soon realize that you need confrontation. 
And so a, developing a culture of honor necessitates a lifestyle of confrontation. And when I first heard that phrase, it was actually Penn Clark, and he's removed a lot of his teachings from his website because I wanted to read over it, and I don't have his, the book that it might be in. But when I first heard that, I thought, oh, man, I don't know about that. I mean, sure, I don't mind confrontation. I kind of like it sometimes. But I don't know if it's really a good thing. John Showalter was at, before we, while we were still at Greenwood, John Showalter was doing the winter Bible school there, and he made a comment that confrontation is draining. And I'm like, I said, I went to him afterwards and said, I don't know, I think it energizes me. But I realized my view of confrontation was not a healthy confrontation. I knew I could win the argument. And I could pretty well back most people. There's a few that I, into a corner, and just, or, or I'd just be relentless. And so it made me feel powerful, confrontation did. But I left the other first person feeling powerless. So it wasn't a healthy confrontation. But you're going to have all this going on in a body, in a culture of honor, that you want to develop honor. Healthy confrontation has to be a part of it. You're never going to achieve a culture of honor. A culture of honor is prepared to confront behavior that threatens the health of relational connection, the freedom of individuals, and the interdependence of diverse gifts and callings. We're going to bump into each other. Like I said, what I think is necessary, you don't think is all that important. And what you think is a detail that shouldn't be missed, I'm like, I didn't even see it. And you're like, what in the world are you blind? But because, and, and our callings and our giftings and our personalities bump into each other. And if we're going to grow together and maintain connection, develop a culture of honor, healthy confrontation is a must. One valuable aspect, essential aspect to confrontation is the need for feedback. Giving feedback and receiving feedback is so important. In a culture of honor, we want to know how people are experiencing us. We want to receive feedback and we want to give feedback so things don't get so big that we keep that person at a distance. We want to give and receive feedback in a way that's healthy and that that focuses on connection. It's an important key to preserving connection and preventing conflict. You can so often nip conflict right in the bud, right at the beginning. If it's like, ah, man, when you say that, this is, this is how I'm experiencing that. I am so sorry that's not what I meant. And it can nip it. It's not always that easy, I realize. We know that. We're, we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about confrontation and conflict. And feedback, it's important, I think, for us to realize that feedback is how I am experiencing you not how so-and-so is experiencing you. I don't need to come to you with so-and-so's words, by the way, so-and-so have this, and give you an information, their feedback. I can empower that individual to go give feedback. And like I said earlier, go with them if they feel like they need somebody to go with them. And, and, and like I said, if the feedback has, doesn't have an ounce of truth to me, to me, then I can't go with a person because it doesn't resonate with me. I was like, I don't, I'm not experiencing that way. And I... I but I'm not saying it's invalid. But feedback is from how I am experiencing you or you are experiencing me, not how Joe Blue is experiencing either one of us. Now, like I said, it is helpful sometimes for me to talk to someone and say, this is how I'm experiencing this. And I'm not, I'm not sure if this is my own filter. Because we do have filters. We, we, have, we have wounds. We have triggers. I was talking with a couple the other day they asked me if I knew of anybody who knows enough about the uh, 16 personalities, the Myers-Briggs, 
who had also been able to help with some marriage counseling. I said, well, what's, what's going on? I know a little bit about Myers-Briggs. And, and what was happening was the, the, um, the wife was an ENFP. ENFPs like to have attention. They like to tell stories. And they just want to relate. They, just, they, want, they want to tell what's happening. Well, her husband, if I get this right, is an INT, ISTJ. He needs details. So she's sharing a story, and he's checking out the details. Well, is this, and so she feels like he's questioning her. And she gets really defensive. So she has this trigger every time he asks a question, like he's really trying to prove her wrong. So we have filters like this. And, and so it, it helps to understand that if I'm giving feedback or if I'm receiving feedback or if I'm talking to someone, I need to know what my filters are. So this is what's going on. And I'm, I'm not sure if this is me. But if you're the one that's hearing that, that, there needs to be a very short time period between you processing with them and you sending them to that person to let the person clean up the mess. Honoring feedback. Feedback that's honoring, especially if it's corrective, needs to be grounded in the Father's heart for the person. It doesn't need to be grounded in the fact that I think they're screwed up. It doesn't even need to be grounded really in the fact that I think they're, compl- they're an insensitive jerk. It's grounded in the Father's love for that person. And, and feedback helps. Feedback, we need to come to a person with the feedback that we see what God has designed them to be. And we call that out of them. We're not calling down, we're not coming with a laundry list of things that they're doing wrong. One of the goals of feedback is to give good information. This is how I'm feeling when this happens and this is what I need to feel. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, I think. We've got to let the person know what's going on inside of us because they can't read our minds. Address how you're experiencing them, not their motives or their character. Well, you always treat me like such and such. So you, always, you, you never listen. Every time I come, you just never listen. That's attacking. It's a, when we're talking and you come back with something so quickly, I feel like you haven't even really listened to what I've said. I need you to take some time a little bit. And you may have, I mean, you, you may not be, you may have listened. But for me, when there's such a quick response, it's hard for me to realize, really believe you've listened. So we give that, it's, it's not attacking the person. It's giving honest feedback of how we're experiencing them. We were, um, when we talk about motives, we were on our way, I think we were on our way to church Sunday. And I don't, I don't make any secret of the fact that I struggled with anger most of my life. So we were, and, and I had a sozo. We dealt with the manipulation. And um, I felt like the person leading sozo didn't need to deal so much with the manipulation. Uh, but they did, and that's fine. But um, Butch raised the question that, um, well, how do you know you're not using your anger to manipulate? Well, for one thing, the Holy Spirit said you would, you're not going to use emotions. You're going to use your mind. But we were talking about this whole idea and of we don't always know our motives, and we don't. So I don't, I don't know my motives. But if I'm relying on you for my motives, then I'm basically becoming a people pleaser. I need, so I, I can't. So I need to ask him, am I doing this? And allow his spirit. Now, now like in this situation, we were just talking. If he'd have said, are you, I mean, are you sure that you're not using anger to manipulate? And that may be a tendency for him. And if it, I need to receive that. I receive that feedback and question it. And if I give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to quicken it in our hearts. And, and if he doesn't, 
We've got to let it go until he highlights it to us. Well, we can't be questioning people's motives when we're going to them. Use hero sandwiches. You know, that one where you, a positive thing and a, a criticism or a critique or um, corrective feedback and then a positive thing. Sometimes I feel like when I try to do that, it just feels almost forced. I don't know. But there's a way of us developing in love, sandwiching any corrective feedback in between positive feedback. Because remember, what I, like I said, lots of times the thing that irritates us about a person is the flip side of the strength that we need from them. And there's, if we can find some way of doing that. And using I messages. I. Not, well, you make me feel. You can't make, if I'm a powerful person, you can't make me feel any way that I don't choose. And that's a hard thing for us to really t- take to heart and to really understand. But as powerful people, you can't make me do anything. My responses, my emotions, my, it's, it's all my choice. Now, you can make it really hard on me. And that's for sure. You can make it really difficult for me, but I'm still in control of me. This is where that one saying you can tell, um, you can tell how a husband treats his wife by the look in her eyes. I'm like, I, I get what they're saying, but I'm a powerful person, and I can live in joy and peace despite how my husband treats me. Now, he treats me wonderfully, but I'm still, but I'm saying I'm still responsible for me. And I could be looking like I'm down in the dumps all the time and just my own problem because I keep navel-gazing and I just don't like the world. Not because my husband doesn't treat me. So we use I messages. This is how, um, when, where am I here? When this happened, this is how I felt. And this is what I need to feel. And this is keeping it all on me. It's recognizing, it's a good way of recognizing, generally speaking, the person didn't mean to make us feel that way. It's places where something's bumping up, either a personality or gifting or just normals that are just different normals. When we're giving feedback, believe the best about the person. Don't assume that they're not going to hear you, they're not going to listen to you, it's not going to do any good. Just believe the best about them and believe that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in them just as much as he's doing a work in you. And understand, and this is that... The test whether or not someone has heard you is not in their agreement. Isn't that they understand? And I'll talk about that when I go to receiving feedback. We can't, my, my, I can't leave a conversation with you and say, you, he didn't really hear me. They didn't even, didn't even, because my test was he didn't agree with me. Because it's obvious to me, if you really heard me, you would agree with me. You would see things my way. So we have that assumption and then... And then we're disappointed and we feel unheard when it had nothing to do with not being unheard. We just, the person did, did hear and did understand. So now on the flip side, when we're receiving feedback, listen to understand. You're not trying to, you're just listening to understand their, what they're saying and seek clarity. So if I understand you correctly, you felt this way when I said that. You felt like I was rejecting you, who you are when I said this. And I'm, I'm really sorry. That wasn't my intention. This is what... And then I feel like too often... You see it. You see it. Too often we think of uh, feedback as giving somebody a laundry list of things that they've done. And when you've been in enough discussions where somebody hands you a laundry list of what you're doing wrong and you don't get the opportunity to explain, and I'm not talking about being defensive. I'm talking about... You didn't even hear me. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. My daughter left for 
Virginia, and I'm just wondering if she got there. There's been snow, and my, I just I didn't mean to ignore you, but my, I'm, I'm really sorry that I didn't give you my full intention. But it has nothing to do with the fact that I don't care or don't want to hear what you have to say. So we allow this. Feedback needs to be a conversation. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, Tim, or not. Um, so this, you're seeking clarity. Let me see if I understood you correctly. This, this is what I'm hearing. Is, is this right? Is this is? Don't assume. You know, I had a friend of mine. Um, he, he he's even said it. I can't remember. I don't want to. I don't remember the exact words. Basically, like he doesn't have to listen to the person finishing. He already knows what they're going to say. Well, if you're if you know what people are going to say before they say it, well, at least give them the opportunity to continue to say what they're going to say. <laughs> okay, and you might be wrong, but. What, there's no harm in allowing them to continue what they're going to say. Then they feel heard. Look for ways to validate. I don't have to agree with someone to find something to validate. Because chances are, if I had their normal, or if I walked in their shoes, I would probably feel the exact same way they feel. I, I hear this, well, I don't need to get into that. So find way, what can you validate in the, in the feedback? When you're receiving feedback, what can you validate? Seek, some, seek something to validate. And as you're listening, try to identify the need that's being addressed, that's, that's being expressed. It's just under the surface. What, what, they're saying this, but what is underneath it that they, that they need? As, like I said, in giving feedback, you want to be sure to say, this is what I need from you in these situations. But if they don't, and they're giving feedback, what are they needing? What, what do they really need? Because a lot, and I'm finding that a lot of us have a basic need. I'm not going to say it's all, it's, it's completely different. But I have a fierce need to be protected and be defended. And it sounds like a weak, wimpy female, not, certainly not someone who would be strong, a strong feminist. But the, the, the hurts that I've had, I need, I want someone to say, not on my watch. You are not going to treat her that way. And so I filter things through that, but that's a need that I'm not going to tell you. But it's there. We often have a need of belonging. What need is the person expressing that they're not really saying? And then, how can I adjust to meet that need? And this is where this rubber band comes into play. Because I can be a certain way. I can maturity dictates, demands that I bring into a relationship what's needed. But if I have to constantly be a certain, if I have to be an S if you've ever taken the disc profile, if I have to be an S for a very long time and put my D on the shelf, I'm going to get weary. But I can still do it if this person needs it. What do they need from me? And if I, if everybody knows I don't mind arguing, but if this person doesn't like arguing and they have a hard time even coming to me, my arguing is going to go on the back burner, even though some of the things they say, I'm like, I could put up, I could find a hole and just faster than ice melts in August. But I'm not going to because that's not going to help that person. We adjust what we bring to meet that person's need. And maturity demands it. Exposing my needs and adjusting to the needs of others both reveal honor. Now, I don't like exposing needs. But that's something to talk about, think about for a while. That's the hard thing about giving feedback is being able to say, this is how I felt and this is what I need. And I find that very, very difficult for me to say. And I'll get angry and I'll get offended. And I'm realizing all I need to do is say, hey, this is what I need. So exposing needs just as much as adjusting to needs 
is a part of a culture of honor. Earlier on, not I don't know how long ago it was, I mean, not how long it's been, but when we would be together, if I ride in the combine with him, or if I go or the truck to take corn, take grain or whatever, if I would be on my phone, it communicated to him that I didn't really want to be with him. And he would so, but he, he didn't necessarily say that in the beginning. He was just irritated. And I'm like, I don't mind if you're on the phone, because I didn't. Until I realized his love language is quality time. And when a person has a love language of quality time, they have a need to know they're interesting and they're enjoyable to be with. And so I was communicating to him by my phone that he was boring, that I'd rather be doing something else. My love language is not quality time. It is one of my top ones, but not like it is to him. So I don't have a need. If he's on his phone or not on his phone, it doesn't bother me. But I can put my phone aside because I want to communicate to him that I want to be with him, that I enjoy being with him, that he's interesting, and I'm glad that I'm here. I'm not wishing I was doing something else. But that's a way of adjusting without saying, well, I don't need him. I'm not sure why it bothers you. I'm here, aren't I? I'm with you. I mean, isn't that good enough? And we don't always understand why people need what they need. It took me, when I, when, when I was listening, hear, hearing somebody talk about love language, as soon as they said that a person with, who has a love language of quality time needs to feel interesting, and it, it just clicked. That's why he doesn't like, that's why he, it, now, since we've communicated that, it doesn't bother him quite so much. Because being able to communicate the need, I've been able to adjust to the need, and now it's not that big of a deal. Because I've been able to, to validate what he was feeling. Healthy confrontation requires humility. There are things that we're going to, we need to ask ourselves in both, on both sides of it. We enter this, this conversation, and this, this is where I feel like confrontation needs to be a conversation. I've said it different times. Too often, con- confrontation is just telling you what you're doing wrong. And it, there needs to be this back and forth, this, con- confronta- this conversation that goes on. And so both sides of it, do I love the person? Do I really want what's good for them? Do I really want the best for that person? Oh, where's my notes here? Lost it. Have I checked to see if I have a filter that's affecting my experience? Especially if I'm giving feedback? I don't know. Um, different times, and I'll, I'll use our marriage again. I don't know if, I'm, if I saw my notes later, but um, I have a need. If we have a disagreement, I want it settled now. And when he would leave to go to work, it would irritate the living daylights out of me. And I would fume. And I would spend the next, I don't know how long, firing off texts. <laughs> and he still couldn't get anything done. <laughs> okay? Because I was afraid that if he left, he would go on like nothing happened. Everything's peach keen with him. And that, that irritates me even more, to be honest with you. But when I realized that for him... He doesn't know what he thinks at the time. And I kept saying, I want to know what you think. Well, just what do you want me to say? No, I don't want you to say what you, I want you to say. I want you to say what you think. But I don't know what to think. I don't know what I think. So he needed space to process. I needed to know when you're done processing, we're going to talk about this. And you're, if, if, I, if I go on like everything's fine and I'm patient, I need to know you're going to bring this up again. And you're going to, we're going to work together to clean up this mess. Um, I know I was saying that for some reason. I don't, I, I, anyway. Have I discerned what emotions or needs I need that I'm going to bring up? And am I willing to expose them? I, I said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. You don't, it doesn't take you very long to know me where I do not like expressing what I need from you. 
especially if it involves emotion. I'm learning that my feelings matter too. But am I willing, are we willing to say, yeah, this is, this hurts. Okay, this is how I'm experiencing this and this really hurt and I need, I need to know this from you. Ah, okay, I get that and I'm really, really sorry. And I can understand that this is what's going on and you know, this is, this is what's going on in my heart because I'm experiencing our relationship this way too. I had, a, I had a conversation with somebody a couple years ago. I was saying, this bothered me you do this. And in the conversation, we were able to talk about that. And then we get around, of, but this is how I'm experiencing how you're bringing this to me. It's bringing up this. So I'm like, ah, okay. Then when I give feedback on something of this nature, I need to find another way of communicating to you. But this person could also understand how they were affecting me. It's a conversation. Ideally, it's a conversation. And when a relationship ends with only one side having been, having, been able, having been given the opportunity to voice their their hurts, their disappointments, and how they're experiencing the other, and the other person doesn't, there's, there's something there. I mean, we can go on and we can move on, but there's something in the soul that keeps wanting that's, that's there. And, and, and I don't know... If, if our relationship, I'm not, when I say ending, I'm not, I'm not even really saying the relationship's done so much as if you part ways for some reason. I don't know if you value my heart because I haven't been able to express to you my heart. That conversation we had, I know how you're experiencing me, but I'm not sure, sure you know how you're experiencing me, and so I'm not sure I can be vulnerable. I find this, and I'm not trying to make excuses for... Um, D's or I's, I find when I'm in a conversation with an S, I am most likely to shut down sharing what I need from that person because I know how, I know how much some people hate conflict and I know, that, I know that in the past I've intimidated people and so I end up just not saying anything and not communicating how I'm experiencing them. It's personalities. One is a dominant influencer steadfast and conscientious and an s is in the mennonite world an s is jesus <laughs> in the mennonite world if you're like jesus you've got this one personality people like me cannot be like jesus in the mennonite world <laughs> d-i-s-c and we're going and when we are co our quarter on the the um Identity. We're going to be. We're watching Danny Silk talk about that. That there. But so I'm. I'm a very verbal. I'm articulate, and I can say what I'm thinking. And when someone comes to me who hates conflict, and I know it's they're about their stomachs in knots when they try to give me this feedback, I generally just sit back and receive the feedback and don't say any more. But then I leave that conversation feeling incomplete, feeling like the relationship isn't quite what it could be if I had been willing to share what I want, but I didn't. I was afraid that I would hurt them. But in a, when relationships end or have this space when only one person's been able to express, the relationship is suffers. And there needs to be this conversation, this back and forth. We're experiencing each other. And there's never, I don't think there's ever a relationship where one person is always at fault and the other person's always entirely blamed. I say that often in my relationship with Butch. I say, I know everything that happens is always my fault. Because we all know that um, he's the easier one to get along with. <laughs> but he keeps saying, honey, you need to stop saying that. So, 
Do, okay, that was a long way of saying, do I know what emotions and am I willing to communicate my emotions and my needs to the person? And then, do I sincerely want to understand what's behind the actions? If, that, if I give you feedback and you explain to me what was going on inside of you and how you were experiencing that interaction, do I want that? Am I, ready? Am I, am I okay with that? Or am I going to say, oh, you're just being defensive, you're not even hearing me, you're not even listening to me. You always have some reason... You always have some reason. You always have to justify your behavior all the time. Can't you just listen to me and just not have to come back with some excuse? And that shuts down conversation even further. I can say, it seems like when I give you feedback, there's always a reason for it. And to me, that feels like it's an excuse. And I'm still hurting here. And, is, you know, and having that conversation. I mean, this is why... This is why you, the, a culture of honor needs to be a safe place because there's a whole lot of hearts, a whole lot of bearing the soul in this, a whole lot of making oneself vulnerable. But you can't have a culture of honor if you can't have vulnerability. I, can't, I, can't, I can honor you to a certain degree, but the more I know you, the more I can honor you. Well, there I'm making it sound like it's conditional, and it's not. So let me back up. I know how I can treat you if you give me good information. And it helps me know how I can honor you specifically in a way that you can receive honor if I'm getting information from you and how you're experiencing me. Uh. Okay, together, you need to build solutions and clean up messes. The best person to clean up the mess is the one that made it. That's, that's why when I went back to before, I was saying that if people talk to us and process stuff, we can't fix or clean up somebody else's mess. We need to send them back to let the person clean up the mess. I can't clean up messes for other people. I'm, I have a hard enough time cleaning up my own messes, to be honest with you. But we need to clean up messes. And we clean that up. We, when we can clean up messes by saying, I am really sorry. Own what you can own. Is there something in that feedback that you can own? And don't own what you can't own. If you're angry with me, well, this... I think I can, I don't think this would be, I think I, um, I resigned from the Code Purple Board. And increasingly, as the year wore on, I, I talked to the board at the end of the season last year, and I said, we're going to need to find another volunteer coordinator. I knew the Holy Spirit was moving me away, and more stuff came. And by April, I was planning our DTS. I'm like, I can't do the DTS and all the other stuff and Code Purple. And, but this last weekend or two, a week or two ago, I realized the Holy Spirit was like, the more you try to find ways to work around this, basically I was disobeying him. I cried all day. I'm trying to write this email because I feel like I'm letting them down. I lose my train of thought when I get into a story. Okay. Um, Nikki's response was so great. She said, I would never want you to violate, to go against what God is asking you to do just for me. He'll supply the need. But there was an opportunity there. I needed to own what I needed to own. There was no disagreement. This is not a confrontation or conflict. I'm just using this as an example where there's an opportunity that had she responded in such a way, I couldn't own that. And one of the things that came up my sozo is being willing to follow what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, walk in that to the best of your ability, and you're not responsible for the outcome. So when we're apologizing, I'm going to own what I can own. And I think, I think it's important for us to find something, to, to, to really examine it. And is there something in there we can own? 
But I can't become who you want me to become, and I can't apologize for who I am. I can apologize for the interactions that have mistreated you, that have been insensitive, but I can't own more than what is mine to own. Make adjustments. Finding a way to become what that person needs without compromising who I am. And accountability. Okay, so we've cleaned up this mess. We've talked through this. How are we going to move forward here? And continuing that conversation, I think, um, I, I keep using Butch as an example, but hey, we've been married for 32 years, and if I, it's, it has been my best practice ground for learning how to handle confrontation. But, um, but he's, he's able to come, and I don't always receive it, but um, Hunt, when you said such and such, I think that, that was, this is how it came across. For a while, he would say, you sound angry. But I'm not angry. Well, you sound angry. Well, I don't know how I'm going to. So I'm communicating. I'm not really. <laughs> getting feet and getting account, being accountability. And, the, and it's a really important confrontation to avoid triangulation. And triangulation is this triangle that happens. And I've alluded to this, and we've said it over and over again. This is, what can, this is why it's important to, to remember. Let me, let me go with it. Okay. In a triangulation, you have a bad guy, you have a victim, and you have a rescuer. Now, if the bad, okay, typically in a lot of situations, the bad guy either has to control or is doing something. This is, it happens typically. This rescuer needs to feel needed. Okay? And you got this victim who feels powerless. Now, it's not always, because there's times somebody's a bad guy where they're not really a bad guy, they're just being misunderstood. And there's times a powerful person will side up with a victim for a little bit to go to, and, but, so, but as a general rule, you have this triangle thing going on where the victim keeps going to the rescuer about the bad guy and trying to get the rescuer to fix the problem here with the bad guy. And it doesn't work. And what happens is, rescuer goes to the bad guy, so-and-so said this, and, and you get two different, for one thing, you always get two different stories. Two people can see the same accident, and they're going to have two totally different views of it. But even more so when emotions are involved, when triggers are involved, when norm, all of our personality differences are involved. So this rescuer, in an order to feel needed, ends up constantly rescuing this victim from the bad guy rather than empowering the victim to go to the bad guy and let the bad guy clean up his mess. If you have a pastor's heart, and according to Danny Silk, if you're an oldest child, this, you're, gonna, you're, you're used to rescuing. Could you watch your brother? Make sure he doesn't fall. Could you make sure he doesn't go outside? Could you? Hey, why don't you go get him? He climbed up on the piano. Could you please get him down? So oldest children are used to rescuing less powerful people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, I think pastors could fall into the, the thing of being a rescuer. We, we have this thing going on in church. We could have a, a prophet or an apostle hurts one of the members of the congregation, and the, one of the pastors' heart is constantly taking the side of the victim and trying to rescue them and trying to keep them and trying to help them understand the bad guy who's just operating according to his gifts. And it calls, let's avoid this. Let's get rid of the rescuer. Okay? We've got a powerless person. And this guy has some powerful, and this guy, but he could be powerless too. It all depends on the, what, what's going on. But we need to avoid that whole thing. If I'm a victim, I'm never a victim. We know that, but let's just use it as a typical. So, uh, so I've been hurt. I got to go to the bad guy. I got to go ever. 
got to go to whoever hurt me. Let's eliminate this guy altogether. Get him out of the mix. Poor guy, he's gonna, I don't know where he's going to go to get his need to be needed met. I don't, don't know. <laughs> but this causes so many hard feelings. And when one person is continually a rescuer, their heart is turned away from the bad guy, whether he's, whether he's really bad or not. His heart, when, and, and when, when I keep, if I keep listening to people complain about Tim or Brian or one of the other elders, if I keep, if I keep entertaining that, whether I realize it or not, my heart is being turned away from them. And there's this dynamic. You know how it works. You know, somebody says, man, there's a lot of blue cars on the road today. All of a sudden, you're going to notice blue cars. And when, when people start highlighting things to you what, you, what you didn't experience in that person, you're suddenly going to begin seeing. Because you've played the rescuer for too long. And a culture of honor, we're all about empowering people. And we need to empower victims to go ahead and talk to the, the person who they think is the bad guy. And we need to empower the bad guys to know, sorry, we need to empower the bad guys to know how to clean up their messes. I keep, I got to use my right hand and then I keep pushing it into my mouth to share it. Ah, sorry. That was, what? I really did. <laughs> yeah. All right. And the sad thing is what happens, and I've alluded to this, sometimes the bad guy really isn't a bad guy. They're just somebody who's operating according to their gifts, and they keep bumping into the victim. Because the victim doesn't get them. Because the victim's trying to receive, what? Are they working, working in hurt? Yes. Or they're trying to receive something from this guy that he doesn't even have to bring. And they're expecting something from that person that the person doesn't carry. And so they get offended and they get hurt. Whereas if they would go, and they could talk it out. And ideally, the bad guy, not really a bad guy, the perp, can adjust to meet the needs of that person. Or help him find someone who can meet that need. We're on a journey together, and we're learning and discovering. And when we're growing together, change is inevitable. And we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make messes. We're not going to get it right. But in that process of traveling on this journey together and we make messes and we make mistakes, do I care enough about you? Do you care enough about us? Do we care enough about the connection to step into a lifestyle of confrontation and build together this culture of honor that says you get to be you, you get to be you, I get to be me, and we get to build this wonderful thing with God together. And we establish this environment that, that frees people, that empowers them to rise to what they are, they're destined to be. Do I value our connection? Do I value what you carry? I better value what you carry. Otherwise, I can't receive it. So in conclusion, a culture of honor sees people as God intends them to be in the way he created them to be and treats them accordingly. A culture of honor acknowledges and appreciates the interdependence of the diverse gifts, the different personalities that God has distributed throughout his body and empowers them to walk out their calling. A culture of honor creates an environment that's safe and free. A culture of honor recognizes that freedom, relationship, safety, and diversity require healthy confrontation. But that confrontation is done in a way that's congruent with our God-given identities and it's motivated by a desire to grow and protect the relationships between us. Now, I don't know about you, when I think about this 
developing culture. That's what I want here. I want a culture here where you get to be you and I get to be me and we get to do life together and build what God wants us to build together. The confrontation part, I'm learning slowly, but it's a very important aspect and it's something I feel like um, I feel like it's, it's one thing that our community at large has lacked is the ability to know how to confront things head on and I haven't learned very well. I'll text someone and I don't get an answer within a few hours and all of a sudden I'm ticked because they're ignoring me and they just never, they just never, you know, just because I have my phone on me and I'm like, I'm, I'm learning never be vulnerable over a text because then you're wondering the whole time if they read it and they, how are they responding. Let's, let's, let's uh, give each other the benefit of doubt and let's value connection. I, didn't, I think I missed that one slide. For, and I did. I didn't mean to say it, but it's important to say it, not to say it. Agreement is never the goal. Connection is. I don't need you to agree with me. And if I do, I need to step aside from any type of confrontation until I'm, my heart's at a place where my connection with you is far more important than you agreeing with me. But anyway, I backed up and I didn't. Anyway, um, now I, got, I haven't really thought about how to end this. <laughs> I did want to uh, share two resources. That um, This is Danny Silk's book, A Culture of Honor. Any of Danny Silk's books have similar messages, learning how to be powerful people and relate to each other and people around you in a way that's powerful. This one, Loving, your, um, loving on Purpose. Um, but I got a lot, of, a lot of information on building cultural honor from this series here. It's a, it's a small group thing, but you could go through it by yourself. There's a series of videos that go with it where Danny talks about different, different foundation stones of a culture of honor, um, talks about it, and there's questions in here to ask. And he interviews certain people like Paul Manwaring's on there, um, Le- Benny Leavesher. Oh, I can't remember different, different people that work at, at Bethel are on it for each, each of the things. Um, Uh, so let me, I really wanted to plan this and I didn't, I'm sorry. I'm going to pull a question out of here. No. Um, I'm going to assume something. I'm going to assume that something um, that I've talked about, hopefully anyway, um, was highlighted to you or quickened in your spirit. And I, I, don't, I don't know what that is. Um, or, or, a, or a need, like you're, you realize I need to develop that in my life because I want the culture of honor and this is, I need to develop that. It, it could be a willingness to, to confront. It could be a willingness to give feedback or express needs. It could be that your value for people, there are certain personalities that are much more task-oriented than people-oriented, and so it takes a little more intentionality for some people, and that's, nothing, that's not a negative thing. It's part of their personality. Um, if I go back to this profile, Cs and Ds tend to be more task-oriented than people-oriented. So anyway, so I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, um, what aspect of a, a culture of honor do you want to grow in me today? Or now, today is a bit optimistic. 
And is there anything, is, is there a lie? Is there a, um, a barrier? Is there anything hindering me from walking in that in my life? And just, just repeat in, under your breath or just in your silence to yourself. I choose to forgive anyone who by intention or accidentally taught me this or placed this barrier here. And I hand this to you, Father. I want to walk in a culture of honor. I want to develop that in my own life and I want it here. So I hand this hindrance to you. And what do you have in return for me? And I, I, I really feel impressed to to go into this idea, this idea of confrontation, and. Um, and Holy Spirit I ask that you illuminate in our minds a confrontation that went bad or wasn't handled in a way that was healthy And if you're able, if you're willing, forgive that person. And it's even helpful to give that forgive for not knowing how to confront you in a healthy way. Father, are there any lies that I believe about confrontation? And just um, in your own words, renounce, break off agreement with that lie and ask him for truth. Father, I thank you that you have created us to be free, that you redeemed us from slavery to be free. I thank you that you've made everything possible for us to walk in freedom, 
as powerful people. Holy Spirit, will you teach us, guide us, remind us as we walk together? Teach us how to develop this culture of honor personally and corporately. Would you strengthen us to be what we need without compromising who we are? Open our eyes to to see who each one of us here is. To see who you created each of us to be. Teach us to treat each other according to that. Keep that ever in our minds. Will you give us the courage and the humility to develop a lifestyle of confrontation? within us a love for each other that values the connection we have and wants to build it and grow it give us a godly discontentment with distance and offenses we don't want to be stiff arming people You want to be drawing people close the way you do. Give us wisdom. As we bump into each other. As we interact. A wisdom that sees what needs to be brought to the table and the maturity to bring it. A wisdom to look beyond the fruit we're seeing or the the thing that's irritating us and look for the thing that's the strength that we need. Would you posture our hearts in a way that can receive what each person brings? And together we can grow and build in this building, in this congregation, what you desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy about one thing. I got a few things I'm still not happy about. Go ahead. All right. Okay, so you're saying you don't always... I think that... So I think the key, maybe... I'm trying to figure this out. I think the key is in a... You love. Mm -hmm. So you want to... So you're having trouble believing the best in people at times. I don't think Mm -hmm. everybody believes... Like, I don't think I should believe the best in everybody. 
Okay, talk about. I knew, I, and I think yeah. Actually, that's maybe part of what I'm growing in. Mm-hmm. Like I'm growing in discernment, mm-hmm. where I always did believe the best in people, so I'd always right. would bend over and, yes. and try to, you know, think, oh, that. And now I'm starting to really see that it's okay to say, okay, no, what you're doing is not mm-hmm. right, and yeah. I'm not gonna. So what you just said, yeah, stamp, that actually helped me a lot. Yeah, I um, think that it's but possible. If, but to, if we, our goal is to really love each other well mm-hmm. and be connected, then yeah, I can see. Then that. you I can see. Wanna, yeah. But if you. Ch- you and it works okay if it's you and I, hopefully, because if we are both wanting the best for each other, it's easy to believe the best. But what I'm hearing you saying, there are some confrontations we go in that we don't know. We really don't know how the person's... And so there... I get it. Anybody else? What do you, what do you, have that, what do you think about this idea of believing the best in people? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, well, what? I don't know you don't always... I've been dealing with all that I've dealt with for the last okay. 10 years with mm-hmm. drug addicts for the you can't, you have to have discernment. That, that's what I keep asking God. Show me, you know, that they are telling the truth because I'm going to think they're lying anymore. That's just, the, yeah. The, okay. They're uh-huh. perfect liars. You know? It's yes, like, I got that, that, that I get. But I can, but I can want, want what's best for them. You can want what's best for them. I can, shoot, I don't know where I have my notes on that. Where are your. While you're looking for the notes, one of the things I'm thinking of in believing the best about people, I'm thinking in, in a culture of the church, number one, and I'm willing to risk that if the person, if the confrontation doesn't go well, or if it doesn't, say I go into this giving feedback, and I'm expecting the best of the person, I'm expecting the Holy Spirit's going to work in their lives just like, the, just like I want him to do in mine, and they don't adjust to meet my needs and my vulnerability is thrown back in my face, then I choose then to put that person in an outer circle. They move away from the center of my life and allow God to deal with that. I don't think, like comes back to what I said to Stan, we don't have to put up with dishonoring things. We don't have to make ourselves vulnerable, but everybody's going to trample on our hearts. And what I mean, when, and what I want to, what I, by saying believing the best, what I want to, us to guard against is just assuming it's not going to do any good. They're probably not going to do anything. They're probably not going to care. They're, but like accusation, or I am. It's if, if I have, I need some impetus to enter. This it's risky. If I give you feedback, it's risky. And if I don't think you're going to care about it, then it's not worth it for me. So this believing believing that you're going to trust my heart, and then if you don't. Then, as a powerful person, okay, this is, and then I'm going to need to move you to the outer circle. You're going to say something, Stan? Yeah. Now, like, if the Lord gives you discernment about somebody, say the Lord gives you discernment about somebody, like in, your, in, in a congregation, and says, okay, they're 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 not healthy. They're mm-hmm. going to get healthy. They're going to they're going to keep going in the same direction they're, they're going, and then they get like like they, they get put like I've seen just in circumstances I've seen people get put. In positions, and then like, like it's like, how do you honor them when you know in your heart, and you know like the Lord's giving you discernment that, that that person is not. Okay, and you're touching a little bit. I think on what Tina is saying too, believing the best in someone, and you've discerned that they're not at a good place. I would, 
Um, and I'm, I don't mean to pick on yours, but I do. Want, there's one thing that I that I want to that kind of connects with believing the best is I don't believe anybody's outside this hand of redemption. And so I would be I would be hard pressed that God would say this person is never going to. And I don't know if that's what you were meaning. Yeah, let me let me. Um, but again, honor honor comes back to I treat you honorably because you're made in the image of God. That doesn't mean I trust you in the role you're in. See, I feel like trust needs to be earned. We have this idea in the church, all we need is love. We also need trust. I, I can love you and still not trust you. In fact, uh, it, the trust needs to be earned again. And so I think that you can honor the person because they're God's kid. They're made in his image. And right now, they're not functioning according to who they really are. And you can begin to see who they are ask God if God gives you discernment for what they're doing right now he can give you discernment of what he's really created them to be and you can begin to call that out but you don't need to trust them in the role they're in and if they're in a role that's dangerous that they're going to be a danger to themselves or other people then, then it needs to be alerted that's not dishonoring to say um, you just put a youth pastor in who's addicted to porn I don't think that's a good combination or so I, th- I think trust and honor are two different things and I think it's okay. You want to say something? Yeah, because when you were saying that, it reminded me of what Kim said last week, and I felt like I don't know if he was here or not. I couldn't remember, but especially with dealing with the prophetic and discerning of spirits, like I think sometimes we have to be careful of saying the Holy Spirit showed me this, mm-hmm. because you could be picking yeah. up on the demonic, you could be picking up on something in the spiritual, you could be picking up on someone's thoughts. Yeah. You could be picking up on a lot of things that aren't exactly the Holy Spirit saying. Yes. You could be picking up on the idea that that person is thinking, I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm never going to go anywhere. I'm never going to get out of this bondage. And it's not the Holy Spirit, but it's a gift of the That's Holy it. Spirit. Yes, right. You could be discerning the atmosphere that's surrounding them, discerning that. We're- I've learned that with people. Like mm-hmm. I've had like a weird... And then it's, it is hard because you're like, what do you do with that? Because you've seen things you see it. in person, mm-hmm. in a person, and then it manifests, and you're like, well, I knew that way back then, but how are you going to put them on yeah. blast like that? And I love what Graham Cook said about that, and he's like, pray, call things that are on the Call screen. things, yes. Like, call in, call them up into yes. who they are supposed to be, or, or even like, um, like how Bill Varenbush said, when you pray over people, don't say someone's addicted to porn and you're like praying over them like I see that you're addicted to porn like we're not going to say that we're not going to say that we're going to say I just want to speak over you that you're free you're you're free from any kind of you know like it like it's yes it's it's speaking into the atmosphere what's missing the kingdom opposite of what yeah 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 does that help Stan that in combination yeah 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's good. And it's a good question. That combination with not believing the best in somebody, we have to be careful if our if our hesitancy to not believe the best is is born from wounds, right? And fear. Um, everything uh, is it is. I think it's. I can't remember who it was. I want to say Danny Silk, but it might not have been. Everything we do in life comes down to being motivated by fear or love. And we have to be careful that our interactions with people are motivated by love, and not fear. But it's still okay. It's, it's a loving thing to say, um, I need to move you to an outer circle. 
you can't have that much access to my heart because you haven't cared for it. And that's, that's a decision that powerful people can make. Powerless people feel like they have to let people in. If they're either, either, either they have to let everybody in or they let nobody in. They have walls. And so it, powerlessness can manifest itself on, on this huge spectrum. Um, I was thinking along this whole line of discerning things. We're reading Tale of Despero. And we just got to the part where Roscuro, we just got we just got to the part where the rat wanted to see the light. He didn't want to be a rat, and he ended up causing the queen's death. And then the princess looked at him, and he, she said the word "there's a rat" in a way that disgusted him. And ended up when when he turned and looked at her, the look that she gave him broke his heart. And the author says, you know, and sometimes when people's hearts get broken, you might think that a rat doesn't have a heart, but all living things have a heart, and hearts can be broken, and sometimes they get put back together again crooked. And sometimes what we're discerning in people is a heart that's been broken it's put back together again wrong. And, and, and in a culture of, of honor, when we create an environment of safety, we can speak to that part, the wounds, and begin to draw, bring healing to that. Rather, That's, that's for people that we, we're discerning things and we're not sure. It doesn't mean we need to trust them. Or our own hearts, because if our own hearts have been wounded, they get put back together. And again, trust, I mean... Believing the best about someone is not necessarily a, a naivety. It, you don't have to lose all discernment and wisdom, and it, it doesn't mean you're naive to what people are capable of either. It's, it comes part of it comes back to what I felt the Holy Spirit nudging me when I was beginning in Sozo ministry. You only know what people are reporting to you. You don't know what the Holy Spirit, what I'm telling them, and if they're not going to listen to me, what makes you think they're going to listen to you? And allowing the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. So if I'm discerning something, like she was saying, too, just praying, speaking the kingdom opposite or praying and allowing the Holy Spirit. And then if the time comes that confrontation is necessary, then do it in a way that's love and that seeks that person's good, puts that person's interests ahead and, and is in its own way of being vulnerable and, and all. Any... Anybody else have anything they're thinking? That. Intentional about not speaking negativity. Your words get, are the power of life and death. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what we speak has. There you go. Right. Yeah. command pain to come into your body this is interesting Uh, that would be me that would be me Uh, yeah anyway alrighty
If nobody else has any comments, I'm going to go ahead and turn this thing off. Good.